Section two of three essays on religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three essays on religion by John Stuart Mill. Nature, part two. When it is asserted or implied that nature or the laws of nature should be conformed to, is the nature which is meant, nature in the first sense of the term, meaning all which is, the powers and properties of all things? But in this signification there is no need of a recommendation to act according to nature, since it is what nobody can possibly help doing, and equally whether he acts well or ill. There is no mode of acting which is not conformable to nature in the sense of the term, and all modes of acting are so in exactly the same degree. Every action is the exertion of some natural power, and its effects of all sorts are so many phenomena of nature, produced by the powers and properties of some of the objects of nature, in exact obedience to some law or laws of nature. When I voluntarily use my organs to take in food, the act and its consequences take place according to laws of nature. If instead of food I swallow poison, the case is exactly the same. To bid people conform to the laws of nature, when they have no power but what the laws of nature give them, when it is a physical impossibility for them to do the smallest thing otherwise than through some law of nature, is an absurdity. The thing they need to be told is, what particular law of nature they should make use of in a particular case. When, for example, a person is crossing a river by a narrow bridge to which there is no parapet, he will do well to regulate his proceedings by the laws of equilibrium in moving bodies, instead of conforming only to the law of gravitation and falling into the river. Yet idle as it is to exhort people to do what they cannot avoid doing, and absurd as it is to prescribe as a rule of right conduct what agrees exactly as well with wrong, nevertheless a rational rule of conduct may be constructed out of the relation which it ought to bear to the laws of nature in this widest acceptation of the term. Man necessarily obeys the laws of nature, or in other words, the properties of things, but he does not necessarily guide himself by them. Though all conduct is in conformity to laws of nature, all conduct is not grounded on knowledge of them, and intelligently directed to the attainment of purposes by means of them. Though we cannot emancipate ourselves from the laws of nature as a whole, we can escape from any particular law of nature if we are able to withdraw ourselves from the circumstances in which it acts. Though we can do nothing except through laws of nature, we can use one law to counteract another. According to Bacon's maxim, we can obey nature in such a manner as to command it. Every alteration of circumstances alters more or less the laws of nature under which we act, and by every choice we make, either of ends or of means, we place ourselves to a greater or less extent under one set of laws of nature instead of another. If, therefore, the useless precept to follow nature were changed into a precept to study nature, to know and take heed of the properties of the things we have to deal with, so far as the properties are capable of forwarding or obstructing any given purpose, we should have arrived at the first principle of all intelligent action, or rather at the definition of intelligent action itself. And a confused notion of this true principle is, I doubt not, in the minds of many of those who set up the unmeaning doctrine which superficially resembles it. 
they perceive that the essential difference between wise and foolish conduct consists in attending or not attending to the particular laws of nature on which some important result depends and they think that a person who attends to a law of nature in order to shape his conduct by it may be said to obey it while a person who practically disregards it and acts as if no such law existed may be said to disobey it the circumstance being overlooked that what is thus called disobedience to a law of nature is obedience to some other or perhaps to the very law itself for example a person who goes into a powder magazine either not knowing or carelessly omitting to think of the explosive force of gunpowder is likely to do some act which will cause him to be blown to atoms in obedience to the very law which he has disregarded but however much of its authority the naturum sequae doctrine may owe to its being confounded with the rational precept naturum observare its favourers and promoters unquestionably intend much more by it than that precept to acquire knowledge of the properties of things and make use of the knowledge for guidance is a rule of prudence for the adaptation of means to ends for giving effect to our wishes and intentions whatever they may be but the maxim of obedience to nature or conformity to nature is held up not as a simply prudential but as an ethical maxim and by those who talk of jus natori even as a law fit to be administered by tribunals and enforced by sanctions right action must mean something more and other than merely intelligent action yet no precept beyond this last can be connected with the word nature in the wider and more philosophical of its acceptations we must try it therefore in the other sense that in which nature stands distinguished from art and denotes not the whole course of the phenomena which come under our observation but only their spontaneous course let us then consider whether we can attach any meaning to the supposed practical maxim of following nature in the second sense of the word in which nature stands for that which takes place without human intervention in nature is thus understood is the spontaneous course of things when left to themselves the rule to be followed in endeavouring to adapt things to our use but it is evident at once that the maximum taken in this sense is not merely as it is in the other sense superfluous and unmeaning but palpably absurd and self-contradictory for while human action cannot help conforming to nature in the one meaning of the term the very aim and object of action is to alter and improve nature in the other meaning if the natural course of things were perfectly right and satisfactory to act at all would be a gratuitous meddling which as it could not make things better must make them worse or if an action at all could be justified it would only be in direct obedience to instincts since these might perhaps be accounted part of the spontaneous order of nature but to do anything with forethought and purpose would be a violation of that perfect order if the artificial is not better than the natural to what end are all the arts of life to dig to plough to build to wear clothes are direct infringements of the injunction to follow nature accordingly it would be said by every one even of those most under the influence of the feelings which prompt the injunction that to apply it to such cases as those just spoken of would be to push it too far everybody professes to approve and admire many great triumphs of art over nature the junction by bridges of shores which nature has made separate 
the draining of nature's marshes the excavation of her wells the dragging to light of what she has buried at immense depths in the earth the turning away of her thunderbolts by lightning rods of her inundations by embankments of her ocean by breakwaters but to command these and similar feats is to acknowledge that the ways of nature are to be conquered not obeyed that her powers are often towards man in the position of enemies from whom he must wrest by force and ingenuity what little he can for his own use and deserves to be applauded when that little is rather more than might be expected from his physical weakness in comparison to those gigantic powers all praise of civilizations or art or contrivance is so much dispraise of nature an admission of imperfection which it is man's business and merit to be always endeavouring to correct or mitigate the consciousness that whatever man does to improve his condition is in so much a censure and a thwarting of the spontaneous order of nature has in all ages caused new and unprecedented attempts at improvement to be generally at first under a shade of religious suspicion as being in any case uncomplimentary and very probably offensive to the powerful beings or when polytheism gave place to monotheism to the all-powerful being supposed to govern the various phenomena of the universe and of whose will the course of nature was conceived to be the expression any attempt to mould natural phenomena to the convenience of mankind might easily appear an interference with the government of those superior beings and though life could not have been maintained much less made pleasant without perpetual interference of the kind each new one was doubtless made with fear and trembling until experience had shown that it could be ventured on without drawing down the vengeance of the gods the sagacity of priests showed them a way to reconcile the impunity of particular infringements with the maintenance of the general dread of encroaching on the divine administration this was effected by representing each of the principal human inventions as the gift and favour of some god the old religions also afforded many resources for consulting the gods and obtaining their express permission for what would otherwise have appeared a breach of their prerogative when oracles had ceased any religion which recognised a revelation afforded expedients for the same purpose the catholic religion had the resource of an infallible church authorised to declare what exertions of human spontaneity were permitted or forbidden and in default of this the case was always open to argument from the bible whether any particular practice had expressly or by implication been sanctioned the notion remained that this liberty to control nature was conceded to man only by special indulgence and as far as required by his necessities and there was always a tendency though a diminishing one to regard any attempt to exercise power over nature beyond a certain degree and a certain admitted range as an impious effort to usurp divine power and dare more than was permitted to man the lines of horace in which the familiar acts of shipbuilding and navigation are reprobated as infinitum nefes indicate even in that sceptical age a still unexhausted vein of the old sentiment the intensity of the corresponding feeling in the middle ages is not a precise parallel on account of the superstition about dealing with evil spirits with which it was complicated but the imputation of prying into the secrets of the almighty long remained a powerful weapon of attack against unpopular inquirers into nature and the charge of presumptuously attempting to defeat the designs of providence still retains enough of its original force to be thrown in as a make-weight along with other objections 
where there is a desire to find fault with any new exertion of human forethought and contrivance no one indeed asserts it to be the intention of the creator that the spontaneous order of the creation should not be altered or even that it should not be altered in any new way but there still exists a vague notion that though it is very proper to control this or the other natural phenomenon the general scheme of nature is a model for us to imitate that with more or less liberty and details we should on the whole be guided by the spirit and general conception of nature's own ways that they are god's work and as such perfect that man cannot rival their unapproachable excellence and can best show his skill and piety by attempting in however imperfect a way to reproduce their likeness and that if not the whole yet some particular parts of the spontaneous order of nature selected according to the speaker's predilections are in a peculiar sense manifestations of the creator's will a sort of finger-posts pointing out the direction which things in general and therefore our voluntary actions are intended to take feelings of this sort though repressed on ordinary occasions by the contrary current of life are ready to break out whenever custom is silent and the native promptings of the mind have nothing opposed to them but reason and appeals are continually made to them by rhetoricians with the effect if not of convincing opponents at least of making those who already hold the opinion which the rhetorician desires to recommend better satisfied with it for in the present day it probably seldom happens that any one is persuaded to approve any course of action because it appears to him to bear an analogy to the divine government of the world though the argument tells on him with great force and is felt by him to be a great support in behalf of anything which he is already inclined to approve if this notion of imitating the ways of providence as manifested in nature is seldom expressed plainly and downrightly as a maxim of general application it is also seldom directly contradicted those who find it on their path prefer to turn the obstacle rather than to attack it being often themselves not free from the feeling and in any case afraid of incurring the charge of impiety by saying anything which might be held to disparage the works of the creator's power they therefore for the most part rather endeavour to show that they have as much right to the religious argument as their opponents and that if the course they recommend seems to conflict with some part of the ways of providence there is some other part with which it agrees better than what is contended for on the other side in this mode of dealing with the great a priori fallacies the progress of improvement clears away particular errors while the causes of errors are still left standing and very little weakened by each conflict yet by a long series of such partial victories precedents are accumulated to which an appeal may be made against these powerful prepositions and which afford a growing hope that the misplaced feeling after having so often learnt to recede may some day be compelled to an unconditional surrender for however offensive the prepositions may appear to many religious persons they should be willing to look in the face of the undeniable fact that the order of nature in so far as unmodified by man and such as no being whose attributes are justice and benevolence would have made without the intention that his rational creatures should follow it as an example if made wholly by such a being and not partly by beings of very different qualities it could only be as a designedly imperfect work which man in his limited sphere is to exercise justice and benevolence in amending the best persons have always held it to be the essence of religion that the paramount duty of man upon earth is to amend himself 
but all except monkish quietists have annexed to this in their inmost minds though seldom willing to enunciate the obligation with the same clearness the additional religious duty of amending the world and not solely the human part of it but the material the order of physical nature in considering this subject it is necessary to divest ourselves of certain preconceptions which may justly be called natural prejudices being grounded on feelings which in themselves natural and inevitable intrude into matters with which they ought to have no concern one of these feelings is the astonishment rising into awe which is inspired even independently of all religious sentiment by any of the greater natural phenomena a hurricane a mountain precipice the desert the ocean either agitated or at rest the solar system and the great cosmic forces which hold it together the boundless firmament and to an educated mind any single star excite feelings which make all human enterprises and powers appear so insignificant that to a mind thus occupied it seems insufferable presumption in so puny a creature as man to look critically on things so far above him or dare to measure himself against the grandeur of the universe but a little interrogation of our own consciousness will suffice to convince us that what makes these phenomena so impressive is simply their vastness the enormous extension in space and time or the enormous power they exemplify constitutes their sublimity a feeling in all cases more allied to terror than to any moral emotion and though the vast scale of these phenomena may well excite wonder and sets at defiance all idea of rivalry the feeling it inspires is of a totally different character from admiration of excellence those in whom awe produces admiration may be aesthetically developed but they are morally uncultivated it is one of the endowments of the imaginative part of our mental nature that conceptions of greatness and power vividly realized produce a feeling which though in its higher degrees closely bordering on pain we prefer to most of what are accounted pleasures but we are quite equally capable of experiencing this feeling towards maleficent powers and we never experience it so strongly towards most of the powers of the universe as when we have most present to our consciousness a vivid sense of their capacity of inflicting evil because these natural powers have what we cannot imitate enormous might and overawe us by that one attribute it would be a great error to infer that their other attributes are such as we ought to emulate or that we should be justified in using our small power after the example which nature sets us in her vast forces for how stands the fact that next to the greatness of these cosmic forces the quality which most forcibly strikes everyone who does not avert his eyes from it is their perfect and absolute recklessness they go straight to their end without regarding what or whom they crush on the road optimists in their attempts to prove that whatever is is right are obliged to maintain not that nature ever turns one step from her path to avoid trampling us into destruction but that it would be very unreasonable in us to expect that she should popes shall gravitation cease when you go by may be a just rebuke to any one who shall be so silly as to expect common human morality from nature but if a question were between two men instead of between a man and a natural phenomenon that triumphant apostrophe would be thought a rare piece of impudence a man who should persist in hurling stones or firing cannon when another man goes by and having killed him should urge a similar plea in exculpation would very deservedly be found guilty of murder in sober truth nearly all the things which men are hanged or imprisoned for doing to one another are nature's everyday performances 
killing the most criminal act recognized by human law nature does once to every being that lives and in a large proportion of cases after protracted tortures such as only the greatest monsters who we read of ever purposefully inflicting on their living fellow-creatures if by an arbitrary reservation we refuse to account anything murder but what abridges a certain term supposed to be allotted to human life nature also does this to all but a small percentage of lives and does it in all the modes violent or insidious in which the worst human beings take the lives of one another nature impales men breaks them as if on the wheel casts them to be devoured by wild beasts burns them to death crushes them with stones like the first christian martyrs starves them with hunger freezes them with cold poisons them by the quick or slow venom of her exhalations and has hundreds of other hideous deaths in reserve such as the ingenious cruelty of a neighbour or a domitian never surpassed all this nature does with the most supercilious disregard both of mercy and of justice emptying her shafts upon the best and noblest indifferently with the meanest and worst upon those who are engaged in the highest and worthiest enterprises and often in the direct consequence of the noblest acts and it might almost be imagined as a punishment for them she mows down those on whose existence hang the well-being of a whole people perhaps the prospects of the human race for generations to come with as little compunction as those whose death is a relief to themselves or a blessing to those under their noxious influence such are nature's dealings with life even when she does not intend to kill she inflicts the same tortures in apparent wantonness and the clumsy provision in which she is made for that perpetual renewal of animal life rendered necessary by the prompt termination she puts to it in every individual instance no human being ever comes into the world but another human being is literally stretched on the rack for hours or days not unfrequently issuing in death next to taking life equal to taking it according to a high authority is the taking means by which we live and nature does this too on the largest scale and with the most callous indifference a single hurricane destroys the hopes of a season a flight of locusts or an inundation desolates a district a trifling chemical change in an edible root starves a million of people the waves of the sea like banditti seize and appropriate the wealth of the rich and the little of all the poor with the same accompaniments of stripping wounding and killing as their human antitypes everything in short which the worst men commit either against life or property is perpetrated on a larger scale by natural agents nature has niolides more fatal than those of carrier her explosions of the fire-damp are as destructive as human artillery her plague and cholera far surpass the poison cups of the borgias even the love of order which is thought to be a following of the ways of nature is in fact a contradiction of them all which people are accustomed to deprecate as disorder and its consequences is precisely a counterpart of nature's ways anarchy and the reign of terror are overmatched in injustice ruin and death by a hurricane and a pestilence End of Nature Part 2 Recording by Sunny Shields Doha, State of Qatar, 2012